Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, Cops, Criminals, and Crime in New York City's Gilded Age. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. So we are traveling back in time to New York City's Gilded Age once again this week. I just can't resist. Try as I might. The book this interview revolves around is a history of crime in the city during this era. Lots of little stories, a few we've touched on in earlier episodes, You might hear a bit from the Sophie Lyons episode, the police commissioner Teddy Roosevelt episode, uh, some more about Thomas Burns, famous New York City detective, most recently mentioned in the East River Ripper episode. And I think if I remember correctly, the uh, five points was talked about in the Albert Hicks episode. We'll go into that a little bit more. And plenty of new characters, new stories not explored on Most Notorious before. Anyway, let's get to it. It's so great to have John Aller with me today. He is a lawyer and journalist and the author of seven books, including The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution, An American Queen, The Rise and Fall of Kate Chase Sprague, Civil War, Bell of the North, and Gilded Age Woman of Scandal. And he is here to talk about his latest, Rogue's Gallery, The Birth of Modern Policing and Organized Crime in Gilded Age, New York. Great to have you here. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. So where did you get the inspiration to write this book? You know, I I had been kind of toying around with the idea of doing a, a true crime history and living in New York where most of the uh, events in this book take place, you kind of stumble onto sites all the time, historical sites. And it finally uh, it finally gelled in my mind to try to do this kind of comprehensive study of how modern policing and organized crime developed in New York in, in the Gilded Age, which is an age that I have a lot of interest in. I've actually written one previous book that's centered on the Gilded Age. Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating era. Um, So I did an episode in the recent past about the East River Ripper. We talked about Thomas Burns, a very impressive detective and important in your book. But we didn't get much into his background, his rise through the ranks. Would you walk us through his life? Sure. Um... He was uh, born in Ireland, uh, in a town near Dublin, uh, came over to the United States with his parents and uh, siblings when he was, you know, three or four or five years old, settled in New York City in Man- lower Manhattan, lived in, I would call them semi-impoverished conditions, not quite as 
dire as the famous Five Points slum area, but still uh, as a working poor family uh, in New York in the mid 19th century, it was not a not a pretty life. Um, he became a volunteer fireman, which was very common among the Irish immigrants back then. There was no there was no New York City fire department uh, until later. He was a gas fitter for a while, meaning you know, he would light the uh, gas lights in the city. He uh, was a volunteer in the Civil War with the, uh, what they're called the uh, Zouaves, or the, it's, it looks like Zouaves, but I think it's pronounced Zouaves, which was a group of uh, firemen from New York who uh, joined the battle early in the war and were overrun at the first Battle of Bull Run in he later said that, yes, he ran it just as fast as anyone away from the Confederates that day. Um, and then he uh, joined the New York Police Department in uh, December of 1863, when he was in his 20s, and uh, rose pretty quickly through the ranks uh, to become a captain at age 28, most uh, New York cops didn't become captains until they were at least thirty, and, and he had he had a he had a a good career, but nothing particularly spectacular until this uh, big bank robbery in eighteen seventy eight in downtown Manhattan called the Manhattan uh, Savings Institution robbery. And I'll stop there if you want to talk about that. I do, yeah, but I do want to ask you. What are your thoughts, just generally, on Burns as a crime-fighting figure? Do you think he, he lived up to his own hype? Uh, more For the most part, yes. I would say um, probably underplayed is his intelligence. I think he was a very smart, perceptive uh, detective. He knew how to get information out of people, up to and including using the so-called third degree uh, you know, which was, he did not invent. I mean, there's always been police brutality from, you know, I'm sure from the Roman times, but, but he popularized the term. And, but that was a, I think that was a relatively small part of his repertoire. He, he excelled at psychological warfare in interrogating witnesses. Um, he knew which buttons to push. He would size up a witness as, having a lot of bravado or being kind of nervous and timid, and he would use whatever tactics were appropriate in his mind to get the information out, which he usually did. Um, I think he also developed a very strong network of informants, sometimes known as stool pigeons, around the city. You know, these were small-time crooks who he kind of gave a cut some slack if they would snitch on larger scale crooks. He uh, brought a lot of energy to the detective bureau. Before Burns, the New York Police Department and the detective bureau in particular were a bunch of kind of lazy, over-the-hill, incompetent, indifferent officers. He injected vigor into it. He brought in college-educated guys and insisted on um, integrity and honesty. And I think with a few exceptions, he was basically, especially for his time, a very honest cop. Uh, He did benefit from his uh, relationships with the um, robber barons of New York, people like Jay Gould and Cornelius uh, Vanderbilt, the, the Commodore, uh, they would provide, in, in exchange for him protecting them and their financial interests, he received stock tips from them, which were yeah, at least borderline, if not outright, insider trading, not, not illegal per se at the time. So he built up a lot of wealth that way. But he really, um, you know the quote from Woodrow Wilson when he, asked for a declaration of war in World War I, we must make the world safe for democracy. Well, Thomas Burns made New York and Wall Street, the Wall Street world, safe for plutocracy. Um, He set up a line, a mythical line, 
called the deadline uh, in lower Manhattan, below which if you were a crook and got and stepped below that line and didn't have an adequate excuse for doing so, you went off to jail. And so he really made Wall Street safe at a time when there was a lot of pilfering, a lot of petty thievery of banks and brokers down on Wall Street. And they finally got fed up, the bankers and brokers, and, and said, you know, we need, if we're, gonna, if we're going to create this great new financial city called New York, we need safety, we need protection. And he gave them that. So he, and he had a number of other innovations, which, which we can talk about, but I think he was a very canny, very nimble detective, probably a better detective than he was an administrator, let's say. And he was involved in solving the heist of the Manhattan Savings Institution, which was an absolutely stunning robbery in 1878. Millions in cash and securities right? Yes. It's, it was located uh, down in what's, you know, Greenwich Village today. It was thought to be a very impregnable fortress, a maze of locks and safes and, and, and etc. And it was shocking when it was discovered one day that the bank had been breached and millions had been made off with. It was, it was about $3 million in dollars at that time, but the equivalent of, I think, around 70 million today. And, it, and it's still, in terms of cash and securities value, the largest robbery in the history of the city of New York. He burns, uh, I think, through his intelligence network, he, he had a pretty good idea. They didn't, the, the burglars left no clues as to their identity, but Burns, who you know knew all the major crooks in the city and many across the country sort of knew that there were only a half dozen or so guys in the whole country who were capable of pulling off something of that complexity and magnitude. So he started investigating and it it took him a few weeks, but eventually he apprehended all of the major uh, participants in the, in the robbery. And um, they either went to jail for this crime or for, were sent back to jail to serve out their time on prior crimes, having escaped from prison. And it was a it was hailed by the you know New York Times as really the first time a major bank robbery had actually been solved in at least in New York. Generally, the generally they got away with it. How did they do it? Pull this thing off? Well, they they tried. <laughs> different ways. It, it, the, the thing was in the planning for a couple years at least. And the, the participants would kind of come and go, drop in and out as some got caught for other things. Uh, so at one time they were going to use sort of mechanical implements, wires to try to get into the, uh, the uh, combination lock and jigger it so that they could open the vault. Um, they had some difficulties with that. And eventually what they ended up doing was basically just forcibly kidnapping the, uh, the guy with the keys to the bank and his family, forcing him to give them the combination. And then they broke into the bank and uh, opened up the safes and they had the best, most recent burglar tools. And uh, they chopped away and, and got the, got the money and made off with it. There was probably, oh, six or eight, guys were involved in the actual robbery on that date, but there were probably another another six or eight who had been involved in the planning uh, in some way or the other over the years. And they had an insider. They had the um, they had a, a New York police detective who was crooked in on it, and they had the, um, the security guard for the bank in on it. So they had inside help. One of Burns's more notable early cases had to do with the murder of Jubilee Jim Fisk Jr. Could you walk us through that case? Yeah, Jim Fisk was the business partner of Jay Gould. And as a duo, they were considered some of the worst of the robber barons. They basically 
uh, stole money from wherever they could get it. Um, I mean, not literally stealing, but figuratively stealing on, on paper. And uh, Fisk was the more flamboyant of the of the duo. He was a guy only in his 30s, but he he had a mistress named Josie Mansfield, and um, she was taken away from him by his one of his business partners, a guy named Ned Stokes. And to make a long story short, Stokes, out of jealousy and hatred and um, etc., tracked Fisk down uh, at a big hotel, big glamorous um, hotel in again in Lower Manhattan. Almost all these things took place in Lower Manhattan, and found found Fisk on the stairway inside the hotel and shot him at point blank range from you know, four or five steps away. Fisk died that night. Uh, Stokes was caught, apprehended, and uh, taken over to a police headquarters. Burns grilled him. He wouldn't talk. Uh, Then Burns took him over, took the assailant over to the dying Fisk and said, is this the guy who shot you? Yes. So um, it was, Burns was fairly unknown at that time. They even spelled his name wrong. And uh, this brought him to some public attention as, as, as someone who was integrally involved in the, in the Fisk murder case. He then testified at trial and, and it led to a conviction on a, on, not on murder, but on a compromise verdict of, uh, I think, first degree manslaughter. But um, uh, so this brought him some attention. This was prior, this is a few years prior to the Manhattan Savings case, which really cemented his reputation as the great detective. So one of the men you write about, and you mention that his image is lost to history, uh, which is too bad because because part of what makes Burns's time as police chief unique is, is that he created a, a bank of hundreds and hundreds of photographs of criminals who stalked New York City. But this particular man was an elite bank robber named George Leonidas Leslie. Yes. Um, it just, to, to, just to back up a moment, the, the photos you mentioned, it's, it was called the Rogues Gallery. And it were, they were mugshots. And uh, they were kept at police headquarters. There was a whole wall of them. People from the public could come and look at them. Um, you know, just about every criminal of every stripe and type in New York, from pickpockets to counterfeiters to safe blowers to bank burglars. For whatever reason, George Leslie uh, was never photographed for the um, rogues gallery. And in fact, during his lifetime, his name never appeared in print as a major bank robber, even though it was said uh, that he was involved in, you know, some very high percentage, 60, 70, 80% of the big bank robberies uh, in the United States in the 1870s, let's say. Uh, He was really more of a, more of a producer of bank robberies. He, you know, or a director in movie terms, he selected the, the team, he directed what each one was to do. He scoped out the joint. Um, he had people practice their roles in advance. And, you know, and so he really was the brains behind many of these large bank robberies burglaries, including the Manhattan Savings Institute uh, robbery. He had a falling out with some of his compatriots and was actually murdered by someone or more of them before the Manhattan Savings robbery actually took place. He had taken the planning up, you know, as far as it could go. And then there was an internal squabble and he was... um, done away with by uh, some of his you know, co-conspirators and left in a woods up in near Yonkers, New York, to be discovered. So was he uh, shot to death? Or? Yes. Well, the, exactly how he was killed is not clear. There were two bullet holes in his brain, and 
whoever killed him laid a pistol next to his head to try to make it look like suicide. But obviously once you shot yourself in the back of the head once, <laughs> you, you couldn't do it again. So it was, uh, it was sort of a futile attempt to make it look like suicide. It's, it's believed that he was killed elsewhere and then taken by wagon across uh, a bridge and dumped in the woods. Wow. So I'm guessing you, you looked at so many of these photographs, these mugshots. Is, is there any one of these photos that especially stood out to you that just struck you as you were paging through them? Oh, yeah, there, there were a bunch, and I think there are four examples on the cover of the book. But I would say that, um, oh, a guy that was, it was not a very politically correct <laughs> of, of, uh, nickname, but Sheeny Mike Kurtz, who was Jewish, one of the few uh, Jewish uh, uh, gangsters of the time. There's a photo of him, and it's in uh, on the interior of the book, which is quite striking, I think. He, he just looks like a rogue. There were some of the women in particular uh, looked very roguish. Uh, they were generally shoplifters, but they were very professional shoplifters, and some of them are very menacing looking. And there were other people who, you know, you kind of look at him and say, well, he looks like sort of a respectable kind of guy, but underneath he was a con man uh, or a counterfeiter or a forger. So uh, there's several, you know, there's a few hundred of these photos in the book that Burns wrote and published in 1886 called Professional Criminals of America. It's still in print. And it was sort of a, you know, a, a police departments across the country consulted it uh, for information about guys who had committed crimes or may have committed crimes in their jurisdictions. And there would be a little bio on it, a, a description of them. Um, you know, they're kind of like the, the information that you would see in a most wanted poster. It would say, you know, what, what his age was, what is what hair color he had, how tall he was, how much he weighed and what he specialized in, whether it was, you know, pickpocketing or counterfeiting or bank burglary or all of the above. And so they, they'd be these little snippets beneath each photo. And it really served this, this, a similar purpose to, you know, what I would call facial recognition today. That's what they had back then. Uh, and it was, it, was a, it was an innovation. He did not, contrary to what many histories say, he did not invent the rogues gallery. Other police departments, including New York, had a rogues gallery before Burns. But he really popularized it and made it, made it seem as if it was his thing. And in, in, in large part it was, but uh, I would not, I'm, I'm careful to make claims about, you know, he, in, quote, invented this, that, or the other thing. And we will return after these brief messages. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify 
or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we are back. Did the success of of his rogues gallery mean that other cities, other police departments around the country, um, did they try to replicate it? Yes, they did. I think at first what he basically did was he circulated lots of these photos and descriptions uh, to other police departments in other cities so that they really had his, his rogues gallery. Cause a lot of these guys, they, you know, they might operate mostly out of New York, but they would also go to Chicago or, you know, New Orleans or Philadelphia. So they were kind of, they were almost um, nationwide crooks, many of them. So he would basically have the copies of his book and copies of some of the pages sent to other detective bureaus and police departments across the country. And then it became a a commonplace thing, you know, by the end of the, certainly by the end of the 19th century. And and then, of course, the FBI would later do their top 10 most wanted. Yes, public enemies, number one. The other thing is, you know, Burns did not have a lot of the forensic tools that we police departments have today. There was fingerprinting didn't come in until about 1911, at least in the U S there was no ability to uh, blood type until 1900. And so, you know, a lot of what, how he caught criminals and his protégés that worked for him caught criminals was, you know, old fashioned gumshoe work and legwork, taking clues making deductions, using informants. And uh, so it it required a high degree of resourcefulness and intelligence, which he had, and I think which he imparted to many of his protégés, including probably the most famous being Arthur Carey, uh, who later headed up the first uh, homicide squad in New York City. And, And also was involved, Carey, was the lead investigator on several very highly sensational, highly publicized murders in the late 19th century and early, early 20th century. Yeah, I definitely want to get back to Arthur Carey and, and ask you about him. Um, I don't think his name has ever come up on this show before. He is, he's such a fascinating character. But I would like to shift first to Marm Mandelbaum. She's been mentioned in passing in prior episodes, but but I don't think we can do a rogues gallery episode <laughs> without talking about this infamous New York crime boss. Yes, well, um, I think one source has called her sort of the um, originator of crime on a syndicated basis in the U.S. Uh, I think it's it's not too much of an exaggeration. She was a um, uh, a Jewish immigrant who came over from, I think she was born in Bavaria or some, somewhere over there uh, with her husband and a couple of kids. And um, they set up a home in lower Manhattan. It's at the corner of um, Clinton and Rivington streets, lower East side. Um, and uh, she pretty quickly got into the business of receiving stolen goods 
And what that meant was she would take hot loot off the hands of robbers and other thieves. Uh, She would pay them a small percentage of the value. And then she would turn around and resell it on the market for a, a greater percentage. So she would profit from it, although she still sold it at below what the retail price would have been to a to most buyers or merchants. So she had a pretty good economic system. Um, she paid off the police. She had two of the most roguish criminal defense lawyers of the era on retainer, a, a, a duo named uh, Howe and Hummel. She was a very interesting looking person, very large, I think 250 pounds above average height. You would not call her attractive by any means. She was kind of, oh, she had very heavy jowls. And I, I, I mentioned in the book, uh, she was sort of a job of the hut like figure. But she was a very sophisticated and cultured woman, very religious. She went to synagogue every week and she entertained in her home. She, first of all, she ran a, she had a, a quote, legitimate store um, next door to her home, which really served as a front for her, fen- it, it's called fencing. You know, receivers of stolen goods were called fences. Uh, So she had a a legitimate shop, which served as a front for that. In the back room, she had employees and her kids, you know, removing labels from silk, removing um, etchings from diamonds so that they couldn't be traced. And right next door to that was her Victorian style home where she sumptuously entertained judges, crooks, lawyers, and uh, the elite of, of New York at uh, these dinner parties, uh, lots of high-priced wine and the like. So she was quite a character. She was never, for most of her career, she was never caught. The police left her alone. I'm sure she paid dearly for that, um, you know, paid a lot of money for that uh, privilege. She was finally caught and uh, put on trial and during the trial, she skipped out and went to Canada and um, couldn't be extradited because there was no extradition treaty with Canada back then. And she amassed a fortune over the years of, you know, into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, she had a nationwide and in some cases even worldwide network of people who bought her her stuff, you know, at, at discount prices because it was hot stuff hot meaning illegal. And uh, she also helped finance the Manhattan Savings Bank robbers. She was a great friend and and mentor of uh, most of the guys who were involved in robbing that bank, including George Leslie and a few others. So she um, she was a kingpin. She taught women... Uh, she took them under her wing and taught them the ins and outs of shoplifting and really had an empire uh, in, you know, the 1860s, 70s, and early 80s in New York. So I do want to ask you about one of the more nefarious figures on the police force. His name was Alexander Clubber Williams, and he was known for his liberal use of his billy club. Yes, yes. He was um, he was a tough cop, very tall, very athletic, a boxer, very stern law and order man, at least in his own mind. And he had a 26-inch club made out of locust wood, which would really could, you know, break a skull. And he was brought up on charges more than 200 times in his career for police brutality uh, but never had his badge removed. He had connections with politicians in the in the city, um, and he was popular with, you know, the business community because he kept things in order and safe. He was eventually had to testify in a far-reaching investigation into police corruption in New York. He denied everything. The newspaper said 
he was completely untruthful. He shameless, shamelessly denied ever doing anything wrong. And they asked him, well, aren't you the, like the champion clubber of the police force? He said, well, yes, he'd been brought up on those charges many times, but in his view, he never clubbed anyone who didn't deserve it. So he was a little bit of a rival to Burns. Burns, you know, Burns could be tough too. He could, you know, he could use the third degree when he wanted to, but he was not the rough, brutal type of cop that, that Williams was. Williams, I think, wanted to be police chief at at some point, and Burns got that job, and they kind of had a had a their relationship, which had started started out fairly close, kind of they drifted apart. And I don't think we were enemies in the end, but they were at odds. I'm sure that there have been plenty of people at the end of that stick who would have disagreed that they deserved it. <laughs> yes. Yes. And he, you know, it, it didn't even take, he didn't just beat people who had physically accosted him. If he thought they were, they look suspicious, you know, he'd, he'd, uh, He'd club first and ask questions later. Was that a custom-made billy club? Uh, I think at one time uh, that was the standard length on the force, either that or 24 inches. Now, Burns eventually uh, reduced the size of it and made it much less lethal um, and and also um, forbid things like – well, he – when Burns became police chief, you know, he'd been head of the detective bureau for many years, and then he was finally elevated to police chief. It was called superintendent of police back then. Uh, one of his um, edicts was that you, you cannot use your billy club other than for self-defense or in an emergency. And the police in the early days used to take their club and kind of twirl it around in a menacing fashion toward ordinary citizens, you know, just kind of like to warn them off or just to show some bravado, or they would bang it on the gaslights to summon other cops. And and Burns kind of tried to really reduce the um, use of the Billy Club, in part because Scotland Yard, who Burns was always watching, what is Scotland Yard doing? He was very jealous of Scotland Yard's reputation as the best detective agency in the world. Well, they, they got rid of the Billy Club at some point, and so he didn't get rid of it, but he really cut back on it. Ironically, when Theodore Roosevelt became head of the police commission, he reinstated the old big clubs and said, you know, Burns should have never gotten rid of them. Uh, police should have these big clubs for when they need them. You know, they shouldn't club innocent people. But as far as dangerous criminals went, you know, the more clubbing, the better. That was TR. So I'd love to travel to five points with you for a while. Um, there are a lot of well-known gangs that came out of five points, but you focus in your book specifically on the YOs. Can, can you tell us more about the YOs, um, the origin of the gang, and, and why they were called the YOs? Yeah, they... Um... <sighs> There's a lot of mythology about them. Just to back up a bit, Herbert Asbury wrote the original book called Gangs of New York, which was then turned into the Martin Scorsese film that Daniel Day-Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio starred in. And that was mostly about the gangs in the years leading up to and maybe just after the Civil War. Gangs with names like the Dead Rabbits and the Bowery Boys, and um, the Wyos, Asbury said, oh, they started right after the Civil War. They didn't. They, they really began in the early 1880s under the leadership of a guy named Danny Driscoll. And what marked the old style gangs, the Dead Rabbits, you know, you think of the Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie and, and those rival gangs, they mostly fought each other. And they mostly left ordinary citizens alone. Um, and they mostly used fists and clubs rather than guns. Well, the Wyos came along and they had no inhibitions about robbing ordinary citizens. 
uh, for their livelihood. For most of the wows did not have day jobs. The, the uh, dead rabbits of the Scorsese film, you know, they usually had, they were like lay, day laborers and then they kind of had their gang activity as a hobby. But for the Wyos, the, the crime was a business. So they robbed from fellow criminals and ordinary citizens alike. They had no compunction about going after the police, dropping bricks on them, punching them out. Uh, they were really cutthroat, and they were a fairly large gang. Uh, they most pretty much all Irish. You know, some sometimes their numbers were exaggerated. It got to the point where anytime three Irish kids committed a crime, they were they were said, "Well, they must be part of the Wild Gang." But they were rough, and uh, they got their name from it was a cry called. I don't know where the where the name comes from, but there was a sort of a bird like call, Wyo Wyo, which became their signature sound and I, I think they they would yell that out to warn fellow gang members of the approach of a cop or something but uh yeah they went through a, a period where they had the city very pretty much in terror including the cops who said you know these gangs and the wilds in particular are just too much for us we're out we're outnumbered and um we're gonna. There's nothing we can do about it. And uh, the Wyos had political connections to a lot of the Tammany Hall types who would get them out of jail or prevent them from even getting into jail. Uh, so they um, they really ran roughshod for a period of you know, at least uh, five, six, seven years, and finally they petered out. But um, they were probably the toughest gang of New York of the 19th century. One of the more notorious events in the history of the Wyos gang had to do with Danny Driscoll and Beezy Garrity. Would you share that story with us? Yeah, Driscoll was the head of the Wyos and um, um, in, I don't remember the exact year, I think it was 1886 or thereabouts, uh, he had a, a girlfriend he was married, but he had a girlfriend who was also a prostitute named Beezy Garrity. She may have actually lived with him and his wife at some time or took up quarters in, in their in their ramshackle tenement in the Five Points. Anyway, um, he got out to drinking with her and a couple other friends late at night. He had a grudge against someone she knew. And that person had a grudge against him. His name was McCarty. He was like a bar owner. I mean, Driscoll had grudges and uh, against and for him with many, many people uh, because he was a hothead. But um, anyway, so he, at around three or four in the morning, he enlisted Beezy on this tavern hopping spree to take him, to go with him over to this McCarty's tavern or home and, uh, you know, use her to knock on the door so that he would know her and let her in. And then he would, Driscoll would follow and get in and, and shoot McCarty. So it, it, the plans went awry. She did get there. She, the door did open. But uh, Driscoll couldn't wait to get in there. So he shoved his pistol through the crack in the door and fired a shot. Uh, he thought at McCarty, but it ended up hitting Beezy in the stomach. And she lingered for about 24 hours. McCarty was arrested because it was thought that he had shot her. It turns out that on her deathbed to her mother, uh, her mother said, uh, you know, who shot you, Beezy? And as she was dying, she said, uh, Danny, it was Danny Driscoll did the deed. So he was convicted based on that testimony. And went to the gallows in the, uh, in the tombs, walked across what they called was the Bridge of Sighs, and uh, after all appeals were exhausted, he was um, hanged in a very public setting that attended by newspaper men and uh, lots of elite members of New York who got 
ringside seats, and it was a big, uh, big event. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. What was the Bridge of Sighs? Well, you know, there's the Bridge of Sighs in Venice. It's that kind of bridge. It's, uh, I think, a concrete bridge in Venice in between two buildings. I don't know what the, where the word size comes from. But anyway, uh, in the Tombs, which was the main prison in New York, which was not far from the Five Points, just a couple hundred yards, there was, at least originally in the Tombs, this was, this was this huge Egyptian-style concrete building, which served as a jail and court complex. And that's where the, the most hardened criminals were kept. And that's where they were executed before the introduction of the electric chair in the late mid to late 1880s, people were hanged and they would hang them in, in a sort of a courtyard in the tombs. And you were led from your jail cell across this overhead. At that time, it was an outdoor overhead bridge to the courtyard where you were hanged, and it was called the Bridge of Size. Uh, later iterations of the major New York uh, City jail also had a Bridge of Size more closely resembling the one in Venice in that it would be a concrete enclosed uh, walkway in between buildings, in between the jail and other parts of the jail complex. Yeah, and as he, uh, he memorably... Uh, told the uh, executioner who was going to pull the cord on the hanging. He said, please make, you know, he greeted him warmly because he knew him. And he said, you know, just, just please make quick work of it, uh, which he did. He was somewhat of a hero to though, to a lot of the scruffier teenage kids on the Lower East Side um, who kind of viewed him as almost a Robin Hood figure. Now, he wasn't really Robin Hood-like in that, yes, he he would rob from the rich, but he didn't give to the poor. He gave to himself and his fellow gang members. Nevertheless, he was seen, so as was Mar Mandelbaum, as kind of iconoclast who stood up against the elite and the rich of the day. I mean, this is a common thing in crime over the years. It happened again in the 19... 30s with John Dillinger and those types who were almost heroes to the public because they robbed banks and you know banks and bankers were bad people they brought on the depression etc well back in the 1880s it was similar you had the you had the plutocrats the JP Morgans and the Vanderbilts and the John D Rockefellers uh, were you know hated by the masses viewed as oppressive people which in some ways they were um 
And so criminals like Mandelbaum and Danny Driscoll and some others um, were viewed as almost, you know, fighting back against the rigged system. There was another, there was another major criminal, very famous, George Apo. He was uh, the uh, greatest pickpocket of the era. Very small guy, like five foot three or four, half Chinese. I think his father was Chinese. Uh, his, his mother was Caucasian. And um, he uh, was kind of a dapper little guy. But he became an expert pickpocket, spent, many, spent a lot of time in jail for that, got out, and in his 30s became famous as one of the... Um, leading figures in the green goods game, which kind of a, was a, was a, was a huge con game um, at the time in New York. Very few people ever heard of it, but it was basically crooks and con men would send out letters to all over the country to gullible Midwesterners and Westerners and Southerners of the, and the like, at least in their minds. And, um, you know, advertising that come to New York and we have some green goods to sell you. Wink, wink, nod, nod. They were counterfeit, allegedly counterfeit. And so, you know, you could, um, if you were willing to spend, um, you know, $1,000, we will give you $10,000 of green goods, you know, counterfeit. And then you can try to sell them, you know, or use them and, you know, to the extent you can. So a lot of people said, what a deal. I can get $10,000 for $1,000, 10 to 1. So they would come to, they would be summoned and they would be told where to come in New York or usually some town within 30, 40 miles by train from New York. And George Apo was one of the guys, he was a, a so-called steerer. He would meet the, the hayseeds, if you will, at the train station, bring them into New York, bring them to a, a little office that was made to look like a mini bank. And then from there, various other people would pull this scam where they gave the customer, uh, they would show the customer, I should say, let's say $10,000 in real money. They had financial backers, these greens good operators who, you know, could put put together $10,000 in real cash. So they would show that to the um, customer. And then while they were having the customer fill out some paperwork or whatever, they would have the quote ringer would substitute in place of the 10,000 in real cash, which was, which the customer was told was counterfeit. They would substitute a bag of bricks or sawdust uh, it was called the sawdust game by, by some, or, you know, they'd have a, a legitimate bill on top and bottom, but bricks in between. So they'd give it to the customer. Apo would then lead him away back to the train station, hoping that he doesn't open the, the bag on the way. And um, if he did open the bag and realized he was swindled, there would be another guy, the tailor, T-A-I-L-E-R, who would accompany Apo, and um, he would act like a cop or a law enforcement officer, and he would tell the customer, hey, you know, you tried to get counterfeit goods, so if you report this to the cops, they're going to arrest you. So you better get back on that train and get back to Peoria and just be glad, you know, you, you weren't put in jail. Meanwhile, he's parted with a real $1,000 for, for sawdust or bricks. So that was a big, big business of crooks in, in New York. And Apo sort of became a squealer. He testified to this same committee that, that uh, Clever Williams had testified to investigating corruption in, in um, New York. And Apo basically described the whole green goods operation, how it worked, how the police were in on it. They looked the other way because they got a piece of the action. And um, he became a little kind of a minor celebrity. He went on Broadway and reenacted the green goods game for audiences who ate it up because he was a real criminal you know, that they saw on stage. And that was, that was cool. 
to the to New York audiences back then. So, um, and one sidelight on Apple, he was a big opium addict. <laughs> he would go down to the opium dens in Chinatown and partake. So he was he was another of the colorful rogues of the era. And that was the Lexow Commission, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So let's get to Arthur Carey, nicknamed the Murder Man. Yes. He um he was of course he he was Irish from Staten Island, son of a cop. Uh he became a cop as soon as he could and was always fascinated with more fascinated with the plainclothes detectives than the blue uniformed cops. He wanted to be a plainclothes detective and he became one. And uh, he uh, had a, he had a number of very sensational cases. One was the case of the, the scattered Dutchman, a a guy uh, who was cut up into three or four different pieces and deposited all over the city. Uh, Carrie literally pieced it together and uh, caught the uh, the two people who had done it. One was a ex lover of the guy, and uh, one was her current lover. And um, so Carrie solved that case. Um, there were a couple other major sensational cases that he. Well, I should say the the, the scattered Dutchman he did solve. They were they were guilty. A couple other major cases he solved, pretty much. But the but for various reasons the the suspect was acqu- eventually acquitted at trial because the evidence was viewed as as lacking one was the dolly reynolds murder it was a young kind of socialite who was brutally murdered in a, again in a hotel room and um the suspect was her dentist and carrie arrested the dentist based on various evidence that he had come up with and the dentist was convicted and then it was overturned on appeal. And I think Carrie believed that the dentist really did do it. There was another one where a a well-known gymnast champion, amateur gymnast champion named Roland Molyneux poisoned two rivals by, uh, by sending them poison in the mail, which they took. And um, uh, actually, one was not taken by the rival, but was taken by the rival's aunt. And so she was the one who died. But anyway, it was still it was still murder by poison. And um, Carrie figured that one out. And Molyneux also went on trial, also was convicted and also had his conviction overturned later on appeal. That one, it was very clear that he was guilty. Carrie thought he was guilty. Um, I think most people who have studied the case believe the guy was guilty. The dentist in the Dolly Reynolds case, closer question, not not entirely clear. And then later, Carrie was involved in the famous barrel murder case where an Italian was found cut up and stuffed in a wooden barrel down below 14th Street. And um, Carrie worked on that one in conjunction with an Italian detective named Joe Petrosino. As a, as a duo, they solved that case. So Kerry uh, was, you know, he was the man as far as homicide, big-time homicide investigations went. So who was your, your favorite criminal to research? And what was your favorite case and your, your favorite police officer? Hmm. Criminal character, I would say as far as a kind of mysterious, romantic character, George Leslie, just because he's so little is known about him and there's so much has been written about him that is problematic, I I would say. But I think Shane Draper, who was a partner of Leslie's, was, was a very flamboyant criminal character as well because he had a very a varied career. He was a bank robber. He was a con man, ran prostitution cons, and then ended up being kind of a big time casino operator. 
he would, and and not much is known about him either. There's no picture of him, for example. Uh, so those those two, I think, were my favorite colorful criminals um, because I think they were both intelligent. Um, they weren't just brutes. As far as the favorite case, I, I'm particularly drawn to the Dolly Reynolds case. The Molyneux case is a, a fascinating one, but I think it's so clear cut that he was guilty that it, it's almost, um, it's not as fun trying to guess what happened. Uh, Dolly Reynolds, it's really a mystery. And I think even Carrie admitted at the end that he, he didn't really know for sure who had killed Dolly Reynolds, whether it was the dentist or someone else. But I, I, I would, um, for, for readers of the book, that chapter, which is um, called The Man in the Straw Hat, uh, because the person seen, last seen with her was a man with a straw hat. That may be my favorite chapter in the book. And Cop, well, I think you'd have to say Burns just because of his influence. And he was just an interesting guy. You know, he could be brutal when he needed to be, but he was very thoughtful and analytical as well and and farsighted. I mean, he was an innovator. Uh, he really did create the modern detective force. Um, so obviously we don't have time to get into everything. There's a ton in your book, um, including chapters on the rise of the turn of the 20th century gangster in New York City. Yes. Guys like Monk Eastman. Yes. Well, as, as the 20th century turned, one of the themes of the book is that as policing became more efficient, more scientific more professional uh, over the course of this period from roughly 1870 to 1910. The criminals became more professional, more efficient, more deadly, you know, started carrying guns as a matter of course. Uh, It was an evolutionary process and Monk Eastman was probably the next big gangster head of a major gang after Danny Driscoll and the Wyos kind of faded away after Danny Driscoll was executed, and then the wires faded away. Monk Eastman was a very thuggish, brutish guy, but he was also smart. He had street smarts, and he had a, a rival. His, his was a Jewish gang, pretty much exclusively, although Monk Eastman himself was not Jewish. <laughs> um, but he had a rival gang of, uh, a couple rival gangs of Italians. The Italian uh, versus Jew, Jewish gang was a, was a theme of the turn of the century and first part of the 20th century. Um, and the, the top Italian game, a gang was led by a name, a guy named Paul, uh, Paolo Vaccarelli or Vassarelli, who changed his name to Paul Kelly. A very common thing back then was that Italians and Jews from, from Europe would get over to America, and if they wanted to rise in the criminal world, they would choose an Irish name. <laughs> you know, the Irish controlled crime earlier on, and so it was easier to rise up the criminal ladder if you were perceived as being Irish. I'm not sure they fooled that many people but <laughs> it, by, by their appearance and accent, but um, at least on paper, they preferred to use Irish names. Uh, so it was Monk Eastman and Paul Kelly were great rivals. Um, and there were several other heirs to their gangs who fought it out, you know, Jew versus Italian for quite some period of time. So your book covers a lot of crime territory in, in New York City. Was it a challenge to organize it? How did that process go? You know, and I, I don't want to sound... Um, too modest, but in, in some ways the book kind of wrote itself in that I tried to do it character by character rather than necessarily event by event. So, you know, once you get a character like George Leslie or Shang Draper or Mar Mandelbaum or Clubber Williams or some of the others, you know, Monk Eastman, you just start talking about them and what they did in the order in which they did it. And it kind of um, it kind of all comes together, you know. And luckily, 
you know, about the one about the time one gangster would peter out, there was always somebody else just as colorful to take their place. And um, you know, some of the some of the cops were very colorful as well. We haven't talked about all of them, but there was a guy named Big Bill Devery, three hundred pounds, who was as crooked as they came. Later on, became a co-owner of the uh, New York Yankees. <laughs> Um, and sold it, sold the Yankees to Colonel Jacob Rupert uh, before Babe Ruth was acquired. Um, but Devery was a very colorful character. So, you know, a lot of these characters, they kind of make it easy to, you just write about who they were and what they looked like and how they talked and, and it all kind of flows. So before we hit the record button, we were talking a bit before we started the interview, and you were telling me about a book that you're working on now. Um, would you care to share any details on that, or, or, or is it top secret, which I would understand if it was? No, it's not top secret. I've, I've, I'm about to sign a contract for it. So my next book, which I'm working on, it's in the research stage now, and it's, it's a little bit of a, not quite a sequel, but... Um, a sort of a logical follow-up to Rogue's Gallery is called Manhunters, and the tentative subtitle is how how a group of college boys turned FBI agents extinguished America's greatest public enemies. So the theme of the book is, and it's set mostly in the 1930s, um, how the early FBI agents who were mostly college graduates and either lawyers or accountants joined the FBI early in its, in its life, expecting to have nice kind of cushy white collar jobs, desk jobs. At, at the same time, you had a new crime wave in the country led by the John Dillingers and Pretty Boy Floyds and Ma Barkers and the like. And uh, so these college boys found themselves, you know, having to, take up a machine gun and go out and find these criminals, hunt them down and either arrest them or, or shoot them, um, which they did. They, in the end, they, they got all of these major criminals. So that's, that's the, uh, that's the next book. And it's to, it'll be published by the same publisher as uh, rogues gallery, which is the Dutton division of penguin random house. That probably won't come out for another, you know, couple, three years. Sure. Well, if the podcast is still going at that point, I would love to have you. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about your, your website, your, your books, your work, how people can connect with you. Yeah, um, I have a website. It's www.johnollernyc.com. It's all one word, J-O-H-N-O-L-L-E-R-N-Y-C.com. And that, that has, you know, my bio and also pictures and descriptions of all my books and reviews and a blog and a contact form um, if you want to get in touch. Well, excellent. Thank you for spending some time with us. Um, I, I've enjoyed it. Yes. Glad to, have, glad to have done it. Again, I have been speaking to John Aller. His book is called Rogue's Gallery. The Birth of Modern Policing and Organized Crime in Gilded Age New York. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.